0: Hello friends, welcome back to Lingering on the Lectionary, where we reflect on the life of the churches, the local academy, and the rhythm of the church's liturgy. Thanks for being here. Today, I talk with my friend Dr. Madison Grace, who teaches at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and serves at First Baptist Church, Mansfield, Texas. We talk about some of his recent work on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the significance of theological formation, and the role of systematic theology in the life of the churches. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Madison. Thanks for being here. Uh, today, we're going to discuss some of your work in systematic theology and the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and some of your recent publications. But first, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, what you do at your seminary and your church?
1: Yeah, thanks, Chad. Um, my name is Madison Grace, as you've said. I live in Fort Worth, Texas, and I'm the Associate Professor of Theology at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, and I'm also the teaching pastor at First Baptist Mansfield, uh, Texas. And I had the great privilege of uh, going through my schooling, especially master's and Ph.D., with the one and only Dr. Chad Spellman. Okay. Uh, in addition, uh, we we worked in the same office next to each other. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you today because uh, I know your brilliance inside and out. Well, uh, actually...
0: I guess I can tell you now the reason I wanted you to come on is so we could finish what we started yeah. when we were skipping the faculty meetings um, this, years ago, our
1: hermeneutical hip-hop album. This this is true. Um, we, we do need to to finish that up. In the uh, future, that's coming. <laughs> when I drive my car, I drive
0: it fast. And When I drink milk, I drink it from a glass. You
1: know. <laughs> Unforgettable words, life-changing lyrics. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> no, so uh, go on, go on. So, yeah, so I teach theology and have an interest in, in the church, and in ecclesiology in particular, um, have obviously have other interests in a variety of doctrines, but I really like teaching how theology is more holistic and then how it's connected to what we as Christians do as disciples, as followers of Christ and the importance there, which really works well with um, being on staff at a church where I I'm, I'm, you know, part, part times where I tell people, uh, I help resource our pastor, we, we write some books together. Um, my pastor went, uh, did a doctorate with me and Chad as well. Um, so he's, he's a friend and another systematic theologian. So it's really kind of fun to talk sermons, to talk um, books, and then to talk about helping people in our church grow into um, being better Christians, but also kind of highlighting those that are called into ministry. So I train pastors at Southwestern, but I also get to train um, particularly the ones in our churches that are called out. So it's a lot of fun to kind of bring those two worlds together. Um, it fits me well. It also fit Bonhoeffer well. Uh, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer is who I wrote my dissertation on, looking at his whole theology. Um, just really interesting person, uh, theologian. And um, I think we can talk a little bit more about that, but that's kind of who I am. In a nutshell, what I like to do. I have a family as well. I have three boys and a wonderful wife. They're all Texans. I grew up in Florida, moved here to the Republic of Texas and and discovered a a new culture that I've embraced for the last eighteen years. So yes, awesome. Yeah, great. Uh we talk about the relationship
0: between the academy and the church and how important it is to think in both directions from the academy uh an academic work configured towards the churches but also within the churches thinking about the types of uh intellectual theological uh tasks that need to be going on uh, within the churches Um, so it's helpful uh to think about that in the abstract but also uh like on the ground actually being uh, not just a member of a church, but serving in a church and also at a, a seminary. How has uh, being in both, uh, serving in both positions uh, concurrently, how's that kind of uh, influenced or uh, affirmed you know some of your thinking on that that relationship that should be going on uh, between the academy and the churches? Any thoughts on on that? Yeah,
1: I um You know, I felt as a Christian called into vocational ministry uh years ago uh, and served on a variety of church staffs and then what was called to what i consider still doing ministry at southwestern and equipping and training um, pastors and missionaries uh but was unable to to be on staff at a church so it was more of a a, a non-vocational minister uh, but not really involved in in what the church is doing and so having the opportunity, some things shifted, we had the opportunity to come on staff at churches, and my friend Spencer said, i really like you to come work with me, and we um, jumped in about a year ago, and it just has helped my, I mean, I'll start with my spiritual life, Mm -hmm. just being able to to make sure that those connections are there, Um, not just the academic things I teach, but recognizing that those things that I teach, I'm also employing Uh, week in and week out in as a pastor has really um, helped me pay closer attention to my own. So that's been that's been helpful there, watching my family grow through it all. But then the content that I teach during the week, um, I get to bring to conversations we have at church and vice versa. So for the for my students at Southwestern, when I'm standing up in front of them and, and talking about something theological and then moving into, well, when you go into ministry, here's how this happens. It's not just um, some type of pie in the sky or uh, this could happen. This is like, hey, this is what happened last week. Right. And that's been really helpful. And then when I'm at church, I'm able to kind of bring in some of the, well, I've, I've just kind of studied this thought here. Let's go a little bit further. Let's push a little harder here about what we're really trying to do to make sure that we're being biblical and theological. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all want to do so i feel like it pairs well
0: yeah yeah that's good it definitely when you're able to not just uh talk about that but uh, enact some of those uh connections it one becomes like a set of skills a set of movements um such that the it no longer becomes like this uh you know gordian knot that we have to solve it's just something that we're in the process of doing and it just becomes yeah. organic right yeah that's good right so like, tell me about this, uh, your most recent or one of your most recent publications, this book you edited, uh, Make Disciples of All Nations, A History of Southern Baptist International Missions, like why this book? And like, what what, what would you say is one of the, some of the main storylines or uh, goals that you had uh, with this particular work?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. The brainchild of this book is, is John Massey who's our dean of our mission school here at Southwestern. And he just, um, as being a former International Mission Board uh, missionary, um, being a theologian, and being a missions professor, just recognized that there has not been a history of this important missions agency uh, for almost 25 years. And set out trying to think about how should we write this? I and mean, this is a daunting task to just look at all that data. Mm-hmm. And so he pulled in, um, pulled, pulled me in along with Mike Morris, another professor of missions here at Southwestern, to just have conversations about what it would look like and f- from different perspectives. Uh, and I, I just came in, uh, I had been teaching Baptist history for a while at the seminary. Uh, have have a great appreciation for the people called Baptists and for Southern Baptists because I am one. And um, we just started talking about how can, how can we tell the story afresh and anew? A lot has happened in the last 30 years. Uh, and so we just kind of mapped out trying to say, this is who Baptists are, this is who Southern Baptists are. And here's kind of a, you know, a positive, but warts and all kind of approach mm-hmm. to what we've done. And so you have missiologists and some, you know, historical theologians coming at it at the same time to try and tell the story. So we diversified the, the chapters. They're all written by different uh, scholars, mm-hmm. um, some of them from uh, who are missionaries and some of them who are historians, just to try and get a, a different a mix and feel with it. And then split it up over the different uh, presidents or executive directors of the International Mission Board. So you just kind of tell okay. a different story. Every chapter kind of exists on its own. Mm-hmm. okay, good yeah. um so as you're thinking about
0: uh, what you you mentioned your uh, previous scholarly uh, dissertation uh, your work in Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, so why don't you you mentioned a little bit about him before um but just kind of a piggyback off of thinking about uh, one subject like the history of missions in a particular tradition um, the study of Bonhoeffer is quite a different tradition in a different era um so just for someone who is just vaguely familiar with bonhoeffer who was this person and why what makes his work significant and worthy of close study like in a a full-on dissertation
1: yeah that that's a great question um and what immediately comes to mind and, and i get this all the time is like oh you wrote on bonhoeffer have you read eric metaxas's book on, on Dietrich bonhoeffer and i'm like well, well yes i have um and it's it is a it is an approach to telling the story of bonhoeffer um has not been received well by those in bonhoeffer studies mm-hmm. um even though most in bonhoeffer studies are, are not in my tradition um and i mean that in like an ecclesial tradition and kind of in the, the spectrum where we're at in conservative liberal theology. So most are more on, on the mainline or more progressive theologically than, than I am. Um, and Metaxas, of course, is more on the conservative side of things. But he he tells a story slightly differently than I think it should be taken. But nevertheless, lots of um, intrigue about who Bonhoeffer is. In fact, um, in, in, I see this in my students' papers all the time. He becomes that person that uh, has these one-liners that people just say, well, as Bonhoeffer said, and, and somehow it equals wisdom, it seems to be. Uh, sometimes I run across these lines, and I'm like, Bonhoeffer never said that, but nevertheless, there's that appeal towards you know, wisdom. I came at Bonhoeffer slightly differently. I, I read him in college, you know, the cost of discipleship was required reading in my undergraduate, um, knew who he was, um, didn't really go deep into him. Uh, my desire to study ecclesiology led me to looking at the nature of the church, um, coming at it by means of kind of Eucharistic or the Lord's Supper uh, theology, um, and then recognizing there are a few people that are engaging this type of conversation, and Bonhoeffer was one of them. And I just started reading him more deeply and completely shifted all of my writing. I came in my supervisor one day and said, I just want to do Bonhoeffer. And it put me back a year or so in my writing, but it was, it was so fruitful just to kind of dig into everything he wrote, um, things he tried to publish. And in the process of that, just was able to see that he has this kind of vision for what the church really should be. Um, and, and by church, you know, understanding that this, this is a tandem relationship between those things that are universal and uh, the local church. So the, the places where we actually gather together to be embodied with one another, uh, and just found that he had some interesting things to say, at least for this Baptist, uh, who is committed to congregationalism, who's committed to the local church, um, and seeing that expressed throughout the New Testament, to have had this kind of um, not conservative Lutheran pastor really school me on, on what it means to be uh, a, a part of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I, it was just a, a couple years of really digging deeply and thinking deeply about um, who we are when we say we're the church. That's a lot more than just this kind of social gathering um, where we meet. We're oftentimes as evangelicals we're like I'm individually saved and then church is just that large organization I'm a part of as as the saved. And then I get to gather with others from time to time to help my individual Life grow and that you know on a baseline there's something wrong with that there's something more rich that the bible gives us about the the people of god Mm -hmm. the the bride of christ the body of christ the temple of the holy spirit those kind of metaphors are all throughout scripture and bonhoeffer just kind of opened up my eyes to seeing that in a different way um and he's just kind of brilliant he he's thought-provoking he has this kind of noble approach his his ability to um Went to stand up against, you know, the evils of Hitler. It's just commendable, right? Uh, there's a nobility to what what he tried to do, even though I wouldn't agree with time theologically. Right. Yeah, I remember when you shifted
0: focus and it was taking, uh, hitting the reset and basically reading his entire corpus it was a gargantuan task. Um, but that's part of the. That's what you know. I tell students when they're working on research papers that constant process of narrowing and then expanding like you narrow it down to maybe a topic in Bonhoeffer and then you think oh I've narrowed the field and then you get into the field and the secondary literature and the primary sources and realize okay this is a wide open thing I have to do this this process again so did you find you know the process of you know so somebody that's interested in this type of study or just kind of what you did in Bonhoeffer's work but thinking about the way that Zooming into a specific issue, or a specific work or topic in someone's thinking, um, as a window into their entire theology or their entire uh, corpus, uh, is that? Did you find that in uh, what you focused on in your dissertation, or was it more of becoming more and more familiar with Bonhoeffer's uh, thinking and the shape of what he was doing? It allowed you to see, you know, the significance of a of a particular argument or work. Um, How would you say the, uh, you know, becoming aware of Bonhoeffer's whole corpus helped you zoom in on the specific uh, discussion of of space and place and community?
1: Yeah, that's an important question. Um, Scholars and theologians are, are all kind of different. Bonhoeffer's philosophical background leads him to write in ways that are not like, um, something that's more analytic. I wouldn't put him in that kind of category, which makes, um, it difficult to really understand what he means. So if you read something like life together, which everyone should read, it's Mm -hmm. one of my favorite books on Bonhoeffer. Um, you can get a lot out of it, but when you start studying Bonhoeffer deeper, you start realizing, Oh, he actually means these things. And there's more specificity that Mm -hmm. he doesn't bring into the volume. So he's not as clear. He just kind of has these thoughts, writes about them. But if you're not aware of his previous writings, you can kind of miss some of his arguments. Mm-hmm. So I, I figured that out quickly. Most, um, of course, reading secondary uh, scholarship is so important when you're trying to go deeper to see who, you know, there's people that have done this task before. How did they go about it? And almost anyone that wrote a significant dissertation um, on Bonhoeffer, they all did the same thing. You have to read his corpus. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, i I started the process when that 14 volume um that 16 volume set was almost all in English. Volume 14 was still in German when I was writing and it it was published by the time I finished. So I was able to look at critical editions in English that are way more accessible than not, mm-hmm. which includes letters, sermons, writings. Whereas his published works have been accessible for a while, things like life together, cost discipleship, ethics, um, letters and papers in prison, those are the popular ones. And I found that I really to to not misinterpret Bonhoeffer, I had to read all the Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. To, you kind of get to know him, to know how he's thinking. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you can find that with an author. it's really it's really simple. They write in such a clear way that you can pick that up quicker. If that wasn't the case with Bonhoeffer. Yeah, well, yeah, that was one of the critiques that uh, I heard I've always heard
0: in uh, scholarly discussions with Bonhoeffer um, and thought of myself, uh, some of his uh, his academic works like, is this just philosophical mumbo jumbo? Uh, Is he saying something really dense? Uh, And are people, are we studying Bonhoeffer just so we can figure out what he's trying to say? Or is there really something of substance here? Um, And and that's one of the things I like about hearing someone who has spent that time uh, learning the idiom, uh, learning those broader conceptions, because then it makes, uh, helps situate and contextualize some of these popular level works like Uh, Cost of discipleship or life together Um, So if you were thinking about You know this uh, The stuff you worked on with uh, Bonhoeffer's thinking on community And things like that How would you say it relates to something like The cost of discipleship Which if anybody is familiar with Bonhoeffer today They're (laughs) either Just think uh, Metaxas or uh, The cost of discipleship Mm -hmm. Um so how would, uh, you know, some of his academic work um, that really takes some tough sledding to get through, what would you say some of the touch points are? You, you've covered a little bit of this, but what would you say some of those touch points are with some of that, just that basic idea of cheap grace and the cost of discipleship? Yeah, um,
1: yeah so there, he he's building out what can be called a Christo ecclesiology in his entire thought. and it's easy for us when we talk about cheap and costly grace, which is such a phenomenal concept. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's really kind of trying to imbibe Luther and, and interpret Luther the way that, you know, he, he was taught, he's in this Holly school of Luther scholarship and trying to say, this is what Luther meant. And these other scholars are misrepresenting Luther, which is really interesting. He's having that conversation. We have it about Bonhoeffer. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so some of that, you know, costly and cheap grace comes about through, through that conversation. So if you're just thinking about yourself and how you appropriate Jesus, you kind of miss the boat of what he's thinking about when you, he understands Christ as being the center of the community called the church. Mm-hmm. and So you don't really have, as evangelicals, it's easy for us to kind of say, okay, church, my Christian life, they, they do overlap, but I can separate them. In his mind, they don't. So his dissertation, Sanctorum Communio, which is kind of a, a sociology done towards the church, is um, is kind of foundational for all the rest of his writings. And so that, that helps you understand cost and discipleship and helps you understand life together. You can get a lot out of it, uh, f- for sure. I mean, his whole commentary on the Sermon on the Mount um, is just helpful there. But you really don't understand, well, why, why is this here? Right, right. And then when you read something like a biography and you recognize his first trip over to America, he's studying at union seminary in New York and he's surrounded by some other thinkers who one in particular is just like, I want to, I really want to understand what Jesus meant. And the sermon on the Mount just becomes like the central text and mm-hmm. for, for the rest of his life. So it's very biographical as well. So we can think, yeah, this is a really good, easy text for us to, kind of apply together, but it's way deeper because mm-hmm. it, it really shifted his thought. Yeah, that's good that's, that you mentioned that too, because um,
0: I remember the first time I read Cost of Discipleship, it was in just one of the popular editions. And the first part was the cheap grace and the cost of discipleship. And I was kind of vibing with that. And then the second part of the book, I was it just started going through the Sermon on the Mount. And I remember thinking, what in the world is going on? I don't get it. Um, And I I think even just the way that you set it up there with that uh, brief uh, connection to some of his other concerns, his context, and then kind of his uh, broader theology of community, it really makes sense because the Sermon on the Mount uh, is something that can wreck your theology um, in a good way. It can rock you and just you keep coming back to it as you're considering the implications of what Jesus is saying there uh in the Sermon on the Mount so it's uh that's a that's just even an interesting angle on the idea of cheap grace and the cost of discipleship is to connect it with um to to get a a a further angle on Bonhoeffer if you can figure out how to relate the first part and the last part of that book you know you know that's in some ways you're deepening your understanding of what Bonhoeffer was was on about um Mm -hmm. So, if you if someone was just starting out in Bonhoeffer, we talked about cost of discipleship a lot, but like since you mentioned too the uh, embarrassment of riches we have now with uh, English trans, good English translations on Bonhoeffer and critical editions. Um, so, what would you say the twofold question? Like, if someone was just uh, interested in starting to read Bonhoeffer a little bit further than the you know popular level. Uh, metaxas type biography uh, someone uh, either a primary source or a secondary source for somebody just starting out with bonhoeffer and then secondly if someone was interested in doing further research uh, or e- at any academic level like research areas in bonhoeffer's thinking uh what are, what are some avenues that you think are worth
1: exploring uh so it's kind of twofold one if you just want to have a deeper interest in bonhoeffer I, th- I think if you haven't if you haven't uh, engaged him in kind of your own tradition then you probably need to do that so for evangelicals we run towards life together I'd start there it's short mm-hmm. it's accessible it kind of introduces you to the larger sense of his ecclesiology um, <clears throat> and then read the discipleship even though he wrote them in reverse order mm-hmm. um, I would go there i I would also add in his posthumous work ethics um is a little bit deeper but it's helpful uh for a lot of people though letters and papers from prison became the kind of avenue to make Bonhoeffer important and I didn't really deal with that much in my dissertation but just to be aware that that's there but for for most Mm -hmm. evangelicals I typically tell them if you haven't read life together and cost discipleship start there yeah and then I I think that Ferdinand Schlingen-Siepen, a long German name, uh, has written a theological biography that's really accessible. It's, it's I think it's just slightly less than 300 pages. Um, it's it's a little more removed from from his life, but really understands Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. The, the, the major biography for for him is by a guy named Eberhard Beka. Uh, it's over 1,000 pages, and was Bonhoeffer's best friend. But So you do have that kind of too too close um there and so Baker actually asked ferdinand to write this this biography so oh, i would read those um just to kind of get to get into bonoffer a little bit more if you want to go the academic route and you really want to engage in Bonafer research i think you start with Saint Torum communio you start with his dissertation which is phenomenal uh he had both the sociology faculty and the theology faculty there and both were astounded that he became an expert in both worlds and he wrote it when he was 21 years old. And that's, that's just Mm -hmm. kind of gross as well. um, Because he's just so stinking smart. Um, But it kind of lays the foundation for all the rest of the books. And so it's kind of like a prolegomena to his entire uh, writing career. So if you want to understand Bonhoeffer, you really have to understand St. Torin Communio. That's why I tell students who want to go the academic route, if you haven't read that, then don't give me a paper on Bonhoeffer. You <laughs> really understand. It. That's that's gonna yep. be my take every time. Yeah. Because as I argue my dissertation, his sense of what the church is, who Jesus Christ is, and how we ethically live in this world are tied together, and mm-hmm. all three of those things are in Sanctorum
0: Communion. Okay,
1: great. One possible avenue would be
0: read dis- Bonhoeffer's dissertation and then read your dissertation on Bonhoeffer's dissertation. So I think I'm, I think that would be a good avenue there. Yeah. Um all right so as as we're thinking about Bonhoeffer we talked about Bonhoeffer the history of missions uh in the Southern Baptist tradition. Um what if what about this more general question of like if I'm a pastor or a professor uh, we could uh, focus on Bonhoeffer uh specifically but also just the broader field of historical theology. Uh so if I'm just leading a church or uh you know a professor in a different field um, why should I care about historical theology or just in general, what are some talking points uh, that you use to help people see the value of uh, real historical theology and how that relates to, you know, what we're on about uh, in the church and the uh, confessional academic communities?
1: Yeah, I I think that, that there's a variety of ways that you can answer that question. And there's so many books out there that, that provide some rationale for that. Some of the themes that come up for me over and over again um, are, are one that we are a part of the universal church. And it is we we don't need to ignore those who have gone on before us that have wrestled with theological ideas and have wrestled with the, the scriptures. Um, nor do we need to ignore the our fellow saints today around the globe that are also engaging. Uh, we may not always read exactly the, the same way, but there is an importance for us understanding that God has not left his church. He's still with us. The Spirit is still uh, vivifying us day in and day out, and we need to learn from one another. So there, there's that encouragement there that there's actually this theological movement that's happening with the church. Um, and, and it's it's kind of arrogant to only think that we have the right answers. hmm and so when it comes to something like heresy, it's just so much easier for me to go back and read, okay, you know, the Cappadocians wrestled with this. Um, they're not authoritative like scripture is, but they're, they're asking very similar questions. I taught a class on the atonement last semester, and we just kind of walked through historical theology of how people have thought through the atonement. And it's just really helpful mm-hmm. just to, to see how um, how Anselm's thinking about why, why the Godman or this, you know, Irenaeus's concept of recapitulation, and how we think differently, and it just kind of opens your mind up a little bit more. And that's Bonhoeffer fits in that category as well because he, he helped me see, oh, that's a different way to read this text, or this is a different way to mm-hmm. read theology. So, so there's a way that broadens your horizons. It reminds us of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, that I mean, we can read the Bible and we can read Revelation and other. Um, prophetic text and say, Jesus is coming back again. There, there is an incoming. Um, but, and I think this is especially true for Americans. We're coming out of this pandemic, I hope. Uh, and I've just been surrounded by people that are afraid, mm-hmm. really are afraid. The politics in our nation have been very polarizing. Um, and there's not a church that I've gone to that I don't run across these people that really have this anxiety about mm-hmm. life. And I Then I teach church history, our historical theology, and I get to walk through, it's like, hey, um, the questions you have about theology, they've been asked before. They haven't always been answered well. Some have answered better than others, but you don't have to have anxiety because you don't have everything figured out. This has been a process for a couple thousand years. Also, the political um, world that we live in, economics, health, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. it's been worse. And we are still here, and God's church is still marching forward, and we're just waiting that day. So, as as Paul says, don't be afraid of those who've gone to sleep. We can be reminded when we read history that the the long suffering work of God is still at play in our world, and we're just a part of that. And the current suffering that we may be going through um, is is something that we can persevere through. And I think churches history yeah. really helps with that.
0: Yeah, that's a good word. That's a good word. Or well, even just thinking about, <clears throat> I was reading a couple of weeks ago Luther's uh, comments on the plague, um, and you know thinking about Bonhoeffer in uh, Nazi Germany, uh, World War Two, and just even thinking about the stains that are on our own traditions. Just the history of missions, uh, the good and the bad, the um, wonderful and the terrible of uh, our own tradition, Seeing that. Our traditions stretch back further than we usually think, Um, and there's both cause for despair and cause for hope as we read and think about the contemporary church, but also the historical church um, as well. So I appreciate you, uh, your heart for both pastoral ministry, but also uh, scholarship and historical theology in that
1: way. I think that's a good word. Yep. Thanks, Chad.